You are listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at sungrove.org. Well, good morning. Welcome in out of the rain. Look at that sunshine. Hey, look at that. Hey, I, I don't know about you, but do you ever have the kind of week where you're just like, you're just burdened down with stuff? You're like, things seem to be going fine, but then all of a sudden you're like, what happened? I've got this ongoing list right now. Like, I've got some fences down. I've got water outside my house, inside my house. Uh, I've got some repairs that need to be done. I've got some things that are broken. And, and literally, I was waking up this morning, and, and maybe, maybe you don't do this, maybe only I do this, but I was waking up this morning, and I was really distracted, and I was overwhelmed by literally this list of things, and, and my mind is also like the cash register, it's thinking, well, that's going to cost, and that's going to cost, and, and my mind is thinking of all these things, and I'm, I'm distracted by them. And maybe you're a little bit the same way. And so here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to just say this. We're going to say, blessed be the name of the Lord, that the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. If that tree in my backyard, if it falls all the way down, so be it, Lord. He gives, he takes away, and we'll do, but we're going to lay aside those distractions. Will you do that with me this morning? Let's just pray for just a moment. God, I just want to come before you, and I know uh, my heart was distracted uh, today. God, there's a whole lot of things that could distract us from what's ultimately important. And for this next uh, amount of time, God, we just lift you up. We say you are the King of Kings. You are the Lord of Lords. Our issues are so temporary. And so, Jesus, we want to focus in on you. I pray that you would also give us the wisdom to handle the things in which you've put us in charge. We pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Right on. Well, we are in a series called Shiny Objects. And the tagline for that is staying on mission in a world of distraction. And you live a distracted life at times, and so do I. And I'm not simply talking about your cell phone. I'm just saying in general, that's the nature of life. And we want to stay on mission, on God's mission, on focus with who he's created us to be, who he's calling us to be in relationship to who he is. He is the King of Kings, and he is the Lord of Lords. And, and uh, I, we just came back from the land of Israel, and uh, my wife and I, we are, I think we're almost through with jet lag, but our sleep schedule has been really messed up this week. I think my wife slept seven hours during the day, one day. And so we're getting over the jet lag, but uh, it's just an amazing thing. When you go to Israel, it will change your spiritual life because you understand the context of the Bible in some new and amazing ways. And uh, I want to let you know that we are going to do a Sun Grove Israel trip next year, not during this year with our various mission trips, but next year we're going to do one, and it will be during spring break. So we are going to do it. Uh, it'll about half the trip will fall into spring break. So if you're an educator or a student, uh, that will work to your advantage. And so we want, we'll give you exact dates and how to sign up and that kind of thing in the future. And, and if you think, well, I don't know if I could do that or, or what would it cost? The, the real thing is, does God want you going? That's what you want to ask. And God may say, no, it's not the right gear for you. And he knows what the future is. Others of you, he's going to say, absolutely. It will radically change your spiritual life. And we'll give you more information as we open that up and make that available, exact dates, exact times, what it will cost, what it entails at that time. But we live in a distracted life. We live in a world where we elevate shiny objects. And here's why you need today's sermon. The reason you need today's sermon is that when the world makes something important, it wants to make a shiny object. Right? If you're an actor or an actress, you want to win a Golden Globe. You want to win an Oscar, a shiny object. If you are getting engaged to somebody, you want to give them a shiny object. Right? If you're getting married, you want to put a shiny object on it. And you want to say, hey, this is important. 
And you want to look at that. In our world, if you want to make some area important, you try and put a shiny object on it. When we were in Israel, you've got the Dome of the Rock, and, and it's this, you know, this kind of basically, it's a big shed, if you will, that has a golden dome. And what's inside? A rock. That's what's inside. Dome of the Rock is what it is. And inside, but that's seen as a very holy place. But our world wants to say if it's important, we make it a shiny object. We elevate it. We make this thing shine. And we're looking at the reality that Jesus Christ didn't want to leave us with a shiny object. Jesus Christ wanted to create a church that is not in one location over one rock. What Jesus Christ wanted to do was to allow us to become the church, that we are living stones. He's putting all of us with our diversified backgrounds. He's putting us together to be that part of his kingdom on earth that preaches the good news and for a kingdom that will never perish or spoil or fade. You and I are like living stones and we rest on the cornerstone, which is Jesus Christ. We don't rest on ourselves, our own ability. We say any goodness in us, any worth in us is because of Jesus. And he is the cornerstone. And God is building that. And we are priests of the Most High God, as we looked at last week. And I want to just ask you, as you reflect on this last week, how did you serve or give or live as a priest of the Most High God? When it came to politics. When it came to the workplace, when it came to relationships or interactions? Were you serving and living a kingdom that will never perish, spoil, or fade, or were we serving our own kingdoms? Were we simply about our own lives, ourselves, our opinions, our values, our ideals? God wants to build a kingdom that will never perish or spoil or fade. And a lot of times we think that we want to add God to our existing beliefs or ideals, right? We want to like take God, and if I can get God as an advantage, I want to add him to my life right now, my life circumstances right now. I want to add God to what I already have going on. If I can get God on my side, then my kingdom will be at an advantage, and we want to upgrade our lives with God. But let me ask you a question. Of what good is God to you? Why be here? Why have God in your life? What are you hoping to get out of it? If I were a non-Christian person, someone who didn't believe, and I'd say, well, why God? Of what, what do you want out of God? What advantage is he to you? And a sideline question of that is this. What happens in our soul when you and I only want God for what he'll do for us? What happens in your other relationships? What if you want another relationship in your life, but you only want that relationship for what that relationship will do for you? You may not want to reciprocate, but you want that relationship for what it will do for you. Israel found themselves at this place in, in Scripture. When what we're looking at today, if you have your Bible, open with me to 1 Samuel chapter 5. That's in the Old Testament, and you're going to look there. We'll get to it in just a few minutes, but you may want to open your smartphone or your Bible and do that. You want to take your outline out today. But before we get there, I want you to understand that Israel had kind of forgotten God. Israel kind of wandered away from God. They had left him behind in their lives, and they were pushing forward with their mission, with their agenda. They had enemies they wanted to conquer. They had kingdoms they wanted to build. They had lives they wanted to live like you do and I do. 
but they had wandered away from God, and it was so subtle that I don't think they even noticed how far away they actually were. And that's where they find themselves. Number one in your outline is this. Before we get to the rest, I want you to understand this idea. Manipulating the symbol of God is not a guarantee you'll gain the favor of God. Manipulating the symbol of God is not a guarantee that you'll get the favor of God. Think about it for a minute. If you're, if you're an athlete, and maybe you've seen this, you see an athlete kind of run out on the field, and they pull out, they maybe got a chain around their neck, and on that chain they might have a cross. And they might kind of look up at the heavens, and they kiss the cross, and, and if they do that, does it give them an additional athletic advantage? See, sometimes we try to manipulate the symbol of God, kind of guaranteeing that we're going to run faster, leap higher, do better. And people do that all the time. I'm going to show you an interesting picture here. This is from uh, in Israel. And we went to one church, and there's this stone that is set apart as the preparation stone. This would be the stone that church history has identified where they would have prepared Jesus' body before putting it in the tomb or taking it out to prepare it there. And you'll see this guy there. He's got his backpack on, and, and his hand is in motion on that. And I was so curious. I was like, what is he doing? So I kind of come up, and I'm looking at this stone. I take a picture, and I notice he's got a little chain in his hand, a little like, uh, like bracelet or, or a neck, necklace in his hand. He's rubbing it on the stone. And I watch him for a minute. He kind of puts that in his other hand, and then he takes out his wallet. And he rubs his wallet on the stone. And I see him, like, take out of his wallet, like, his business card. And he's, like, rubbing that on the stone. And you know, maybe I could get a little extra, right? In fact, our tour guide said that, that ladies who want to get pregnant from certain other countries will come over and they'll actually rub their belly on the stone. And you would look at that and you're like, what are you, this is a church. Stop it. Like, what are you doing? That's just odd. That's weird. Like, what, what in the world? And what they're doing is they're doing what you and I try to do. They're trying to get an advantage. They're trying to say, well, maybe if I could, if I could take my wallet and rub it on this stone, then God will somehow bless my finances or my business or my relationships. And maybe he'll take that little that bracelet or chain away and he'll give it to somebody in, in an idea, just carry the blessing of God. He's looking for an advantage is what this guy was doing. And that's what people do. And we would look at it and go, boy, that is just really weird. And then those people would come to our country, and what would they see? They would say, listen, having a Christian tattoo on the outside of your skin doesn't guarantee that you got the favor of God on the inside of your skin. You say, wearing a Christian t-shirt or putting up a, a Christian saying on social networking doesn't guarantee the favor of God because there's this natural bent in people like you and me to manipulate the symbols of God in an effort to guarantee the favor of God. And I think we might have wandered away from God. People are always looking for a blessing, for an upgrade, for enlightenment, for tranquility in their life. Some even would turn to a psychic or a medium or a spiritist to try to get what they don't realize is demonic advice through another person that carries spiritual oppression along with it. They don't realize that they left with more than they came there with, all in the effort of gaining an advantage. People want an advantage, and advantages often prove to become nothing more than a shiny object. You thought it was going to be great, but at the end of the day, it just glistened like it was going to do great things for you, but it can't fulfill the needs that only God can fulfill. 
Well, God had become an afterthought to the people of Israel, and they wanted to manipulate the outcome with a shiny object. And in this case, the shiny object that they wanted to manipulate God's favor with was the Ark of the Covenant. And it's the golden Ark of the Covenant. You may have seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, or last year when we did the Walls Fall Down series, we had a replica of like a golden Ark of the Covenant. And and this was the shiny object. To Israel, this symbolized the presence of the living God being with them. And so what happens in 1 Samuel chapter 4, we're going to look at chapter 5, but let me sum up chapter 4. In chapter 4, they've got their mortal enemies, the Philistines. And they were going to go attack the Philistines. So the Israeli army gets together and they go out to attack the Philistine army. And they go out and they're going to fight. And as they fight, they have over 4,000 casualties, the Israelis do. And they run back and they kind of gather up as an army and they say, what happened? What happened? We went out to fight and we got worked. 4,000 people being killed. Unbelievable. So like, we got to regroup. We, gotta, we did something wrong. We got we to gotta figure this out. And so they go and they say, let's, let's get the gold box. Let's get the shiny object. Let's go get the favor of God and have him go with us into battle. And so they send for the ark. And the ark eventually comes back and it comes into camp. And listen, when the ark arrived in camp, the Israeli army gave such a loud shout, a loud cry, and they yelled so much that the ground actually shook. And the Philistine people, they heard this. The Philistine armies, they heard it, and they were like, oh, crud, what just happened? They've got an advantage. And so literally, like, the, the, the generals are telling the Philistine soldiers, listen, we got our backs up against the wall. They got, they got their God with them, and we've heard about how powerful their God is. So he's like, listen, fight. Fight like men, or we're all going to die. In other words, this is for our survival. You've got to fight the Israelis so much because what's going to happen is we're going to die otherwise. And the two armies come together, and they fight desperately. And they fight so much that over 30,000 Israeli soldiers fall. So at this point in time, 34,000 Soldiers died. I want you just to compare that to terrorist attack. We hear of a terrorist attack, even something like 911, and we think of how many, 9-11, how many people died in that. That would pale in comparison to what happened this day. 34,000 soldiers died, and even worse, the Philistines capture the shiny object. And they take it away. And what the scriptures say is that every Israeli person fled back to his own tent. And what I mean by that is that these Jewish people, they fled back not to their army tent, they fled back to their own home. They tucked tail, they ran, they said, forget about it, we got work so bad, we're just going to run back and be concerned about our life and our mission, and we're going to go hide from the Philistines because we've lost the favor of God. And then we pick up in 1 Samuel chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. And here's what's going to happen. As we read along in this uh, today, what I want you to do is, if it's highlighted on our text, I want you to read that out loud with me, okay? So we're going to have a little participation. You guys with me? All right, so we're going to read that out loud if it's highlighted in like a yellowish color, all right? So here's what it says. After the Philistines had captured the Ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then they carried the ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early, 
early the next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But the following morning when they rose, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. His head and his hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold and only his body remained. And this is why to this day, neither the priests of Dagon nor any others who entered Dagon's temple at Ashdod step on the threshold. So here's this interesting thing that happens. The Philistines are thinking, listen, we got the advantage. We won the battle. And so if we're getting advantages, if we're taking trophies, what we're going to do is we're going to put it with what we already deemed to be powerful. And we got this really nice temple built to Dagon, their God. And so we're going to take the Ark of the Covenant and we're going to just put our advantages, our trophies together. And so they stick them in the temple. And the next morning, as we read in the scriptures, they come back and Dagon, this big statue, is down face down before the Ark of the Covenant. They're thinking, man, we didn't have an earthquake last night, or like, I didn't feel anything. Do you? And they, they don't, so they pick him back up, and it would have taken all day because that's a massive, you know, uh, marble statue, and put him back up. Well, the next morning they come in, and he's fallen face down in front of the ark of the Lord. His head and his hands are off, and they're lying on the threshold. And as people do, they get superstitious. You've heard of like step on a crack, break your mom's. Right, right, right. So what they do is they think, hey, our God, the symbol of power for us, it, his head and his hands, in other words, what, what we believe about him and what he's able to do, his power, hit the threshold so we're not going to step on it anymore. But it's an interesting thing that happens. Why did his head come off? Why did his hands come off? If you look ahead in 1 Samuel 17, you see David, the shepherd boy, fighting against Goliath, the Philistine largest soldier they've ever had. And David comes fighting him, and he takes a stone, and he puts it in his sling, and he whips it around, and he throws it, and it goes into Goliath's head. And then David rushes forward, and he cuts his head off. And people are like, why? Did he, did he just knock him out? Did he have to finish him off? Why did David cut off his head? And as you read the text, you find out that David carries Goliath's massive head around with him. And what you got to realize is in ancient days, the way that people did a head count was by taking the head or the hands of fallen soldiers. It was both shameful, but it was their way of doing a head count. When you say, hey, let's take a head count, you don't really realize where that came from. It's kind of creepy when you think about it. But God makes a statement. God said, I am God. You're false God. I will take its head off. I'll take its hands of what you think it can do for you. And I will show that your God is subject to me. When you truly encounter the living God, you see how empty your other gods become. You and I elevate things in our lives to make them like a God. It might be our kingdom. It might be what we think we have control over. And we elevate those pretty high. And sometimes when we take the living God, who God really is, not just what God will do for us, but who he really is, all of a sudden we put him side by side and we realize how pale the promises and the power of our false gods really are. And right then and there, that's what the Philistine people are beginning to become aware of, that their false gods are both headless and handless. 
And I want to suggest to you that sometimes a loving but jealous God in your life and mine says when you and I elevate other things in our lives to be shiny objects, to be false gods, that God is going to say, listen, I want to reveal to you that your false God is both headless and handless. 1 Samuel chapter 5, verse 6, the story goes on. You're going to read aloud with me. We're going to get right into it. Ready? Are you ready? The Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod and its vicinity, and he brought devastation on them and afflicted them with tumors. And when the people of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not stay here with us because his hand is heavy on us and on Dagon, our God. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines. By the way, I want to time out real quick there. All the rulers of the Philistines. How many rulers were there? There were five. How many main cities were there of the Philistines? There were five. I want to fast forward. When David went down to the brook to fight Goliath and he picked up, how many stones did he pick up? Five. Now, most of us just think, hey, you just want to pad your pockets in case the first shot misses, right? You got some back and forth in case you kill Goliath and then other dudes run at you. Some people suggest that, well, Goliath had brothers and or sons, but there's no indication in the scripture that David intended that. He probably was just being smart, but I love how the Lord in scripture reinforces numbers. That the fight wasn't just against one battle, but the fight was against two different nations, and one nation was a nation that was under the heavy hand of God because of their false gods. But here you have Israel, the people of God, who had forgotten God. So they called together the five uh, rulers of the Philistines and asked them, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they answered, have the ark of the God of Israel moved to Gath? So they moved the ark of God of Israel. But after they had moved it, the Lord's hand, good job, was against that city, throwing it into a great panic. And he afflicted the people of the city, both young and old, with an outbreak of tumors. So they sent the, God, the ark of God to Ekron. And as the ark of God was entering Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, they brought the ark of God of Israel around to us to kill us and our people. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and said, send the ark of God of Israel away. Let it go back to its own place or it will kill us and our people. For death had filled the city with panic. God's hand was very heavy on it. And those who did not die were afflicted with tumors. And the outcry of the city went up to heaven. This is the first description in scripture of God's hand being against a people or against something. And it becomes illustrated throughout scripture. Later in chapter 7, verse 13, it talks about for those many years, the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines during Samuel's lifetime. We begin to see this question, how do I know? I mean, bad things happen. How do I know if the Lord's hand is against me? And some of you in this room, you might be thinking, listen, listen, in my life, I feel like sometimes God's just against me. Like things might be going good, but I'm just waiting for the other shoe to drop. Because I'm not convinced on the inside that God is really for me. I kind of think he might be against me. His hand might be against me. There's an interesting thing that happens right here in the scripture. They move the ark to three different cities. But I want you to understand the names of the cities and what they mean. 
First of all, you go to Ashdod, and you could go to Ashdod in Israel today. And you go to Ashdod, and when you go there, it, it, you got to understand what the name of the city was. It's in such a strategic location that the name of the city was Stronghold. So then what do they do? They fight the Israelites. They say, listen, we're going to take this advantage. We're going to take the Ark of the Covenant to the stronghold. We've already got a great temple there. We're going to put it with our gods. We're going to put it in the safest place. We're going to put it in our most powerful, our you know, national city, if you will. And they take it there, but then the outbreak starts to happen and God reveals his power. And so they say, oh, let's get rid of it. Let's take it away from the stronghold. And now we're going to take it to Gath. Well, Gath means wine press. And the people there receive the ark, but instantly the hand of God is pressing against them, squeezing out their life. And they panic, and they're getting tumors, and, and later in the scripture we'll find out that they, they had rats as well, and people will speculate that rats may have been what brought the disease. The scripture doesn't give us that indication. All we know is that they had an outbreak of rats, and they all started getting tumors very fast. And so they said, send it away. Get it out of Gath. We're being hard-pressed. So they send it off to Ekron, and Ekron means barrenness or torn away. They feel like their health has been torn away. They, they, they panic. They're like, get this ark away from us. Take it out from us. Get it away from us. And isn't it interesting that when they think they have the advantage of the power of God, they take it to their stronghold, but by the end of the process, they're like, get it away. This thing's a killer. It's not what we hoped it would be. When we add God to our existing shiny objects, we quickly find out that those shiny objects are not satisfying. They're not satisfying. Sometimes God's hand shows us how empty our substitutes are to satisfying our deepest needs. You put your hope in something and you thought it was going to satisfy you. You thought that that was going to make you whole. You thought that it was going to make you stronger, that it was going to fill the emptiness on the inside. But you quickly found out that the shiny object cannot do that. That you don't need the shiny object. You need God himself, a God who wraps himself in light like a garment, a God who is God above the heavens, a God who can speak into creation, the universe. That's who your soul was created to revere and to fear in a right sense with respect and love and worship and relate to and go to as your source. But what do we do? We tried to build security as our source. We tried to build up our kingdom as a source. We reached to other people to meet the things in us that we think are shortcomings in our own life and they simply cannot satisfy. Listen. God's hand is not against you. But make no mistake, sometimes God's hand is against our idols because of his jealous love for us. Much like if you uh, had a spouse and your spouse, if their heart was turning away from you to something else, your heart would still be for your spouse, but your heart would be against what they're turning toward. And God, in the same way, says, listen, I want you to come back to me. I want you to identify that that's a false God, and it cannot satisfy, it cannot meet your needs. In fact, that will become idolatry for you. But I want to show you that it's headless and it's handless. I want you to come back to me. The problem with you and me is that sometimes they don't look like idols. Sometimes they just look like good things. And I want you to understand that 
even good, otherwise good things can at times become idols. And I want to explore those with you here this morning a little bit. And so in your outline, we're going to look at five different things that Solomon looked to. He said, I'm the wisest guy. God has given me incredible wisdom. He's also the most wealthy man in the entire day and age at that time. The man had concubines. The man had wives. And some of them were his choosing. And some of them were, if you will, gifts because of treaties with other nations. That basically he just had, I, I have everything a person could ever, ever want and yet I'm going to pursue and see what satisfies in life. And there were five things he ran after as the king of Israel. And the first one is wine. And it's not just wine. It's pleasures that still leave the soul wanting. All sorts of pleasures that can leave the soul wanting. He said, I haven't denied myself anything. I'll pursue after whatever I want, whatever the soul, the body, whatever I want. I'm going to pursue it to its end with wisdom and see if it ends up satisfying me. And we have a world right now that is pursuing all sorts of pleasures. And there's this picture that when we do, it's like what the Israelites do when they run back to their own tent that sometimes you and I escape toward pleasure. But we find out that that pleasure doesn't last, it doesn't satisfy, it's got the law of diminishing returns. So he says this in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 1, I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind so guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. Sometimes you and I run away back to our tent. We run away and we run to the temporary pleasures of life. Life was hard, so I'm going to run to something that might satisfy, but we find that it's still wanting, that the pleasure doesn't last and he illustrates wine here. He illustrates laughter. He illustrates humor. And some of us in this room, you, you will run away. You'll watch a, a very, very funny movie that you'd be embarrassed if Jesus was sitting on the couch with you while you're watching that movie. But you'll run to escape and run to laugh only to find out that the laughter doesn't last. It doesn't satisfy. You'll run to a shiny object. Solomon mentions wine. Is it wrong to have a glass of wine? No. Is it wrong to be drunk? Yes. Scripture is very clear about any substance, wine or anything else, that overtakes our self-control. Whether it's declared legal in our state or our nation or not, if it takes away your self-control, God says we are to be controlled by God's Holy Spirit, not to give away our control to things that control us and make us make unwise decisions. So he said, I pursued it. I pursued it to the full, he said, and found that it was still wanting. And some of you in this room, you would, you've been through life. You've been through some stuff. And you would say, for you, with alcohol, you would say, I'm an alcoholic, and I'm in recovery, and I'm working through that, and I'm, I don't want it to control me any longer. And some of you say, well, I'm not an alcoholic. But maybe God would come along and ask you this. He might say, but are you alcohol dependent? Can you go to sleep without it? Do you have to have it? Can you say no to it? Or any other substance? Sometimes we run away to things. Sometimes we run away to pleasure. We run away to escape life. 
We just run to pleasures. Is it wrong to, you know, have some pleasurable experiences? It's not necessarily wrong, but when we elevate those things that are our escape to meet the needs that our soul is hungering for, they can quickly become an idol. So the first thing he discovered was pleasures. He discovered wine. The second thing he did, number three on your outline, is wisdom. The more that you know, the more you know that knowledge alone cannot satisfy. Help me with the phrase, ignorance is bliss, right? Is bliss wrong? Is it bad? Bliss sounds pretty good to me, doesn't it to you? But what Solomon's saying, listen, I'm the wisest guy, and I, I get energized by information. I get energized by pursuing knowledge. It, it quickens, it does something in me, and I, he's the wisest man at the time, and yet he said to himself this in chapter 2, verse 15, he said, then I said to myself, the fate of the fool will all overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said to myself, this too is meaningless. Let me time out right there. When you see the word meaningless in the book of Ecclesiastes, it doesn't mean like we think meaningless. We think meaningless means it has no meaning. But let me tell you, there are things that you can do that have meaning, but they're frustrating. It doesn't mean it's without meaning. It means frustrating. And I think the best rendering of that word in English is frustrating. So he says this, this too is frustrating for the wise like the fool will not be long remembered. The days have already come when both have been forgotten. Like the fool, the wise must, wise too must die. What's he saying? It doesn't matter if you got a lot of knowledge or you're foolish. He goes, the, the end is the same for both. The advantage of wisdom doesn't gain me any advantage when my result is the same as a person who's a foolish person. And what is he realizing? He's not saying it's bad to be wise. It's not bad to have knowledge. But there's a self-sufficiency to it that makes you think you and I have an advantage. And God will come along and say, listen, are, are you a know-it-all? Are you one who knows everything too often? Are you the person who is too self-sufficient? Like, God, God, I know, I know what I should be doing, but thank you, God, I got this. I don't really need you, God, in my life. I, I'm pretty smart. I can do it on my own. And what happens is you and I become slow learners, right? We realize our soul is hungry. Knowledge alone cannot satisfy and it doesn't mean we don't aspire to great things. In fact, as believers, we should aspire. If God's given us gifts in knowledge, if he's given us gifts in wisdom, we should pursue those to an end that lets God leverage our lives in ways to do great things. But our dependence, our source has still got to be God. And we've got to realize at the end of days, the wisest person has the same result as the fool, and they both stand before God Almighty. Some of you run away to knowledge. It's like an escape to your tent. Like, I want to control this. I want to learn more. I gotta, I gotta, and and it's, it's a constant escape. Sometimes it keeps you from engaging with the living God. Some of you are more comfortable finding out about God with knowledge more than you're comfortable being with God in relationship. It, too, can be an escape to your tent, is what Solomon said, what he finds. He goes on, and there's two together in this number four. The other two, he looks at our wealth and work. 
Now, wealth and work are both good things. You should earn an honest wage so that the New Testament tells us we have something to share. We should work. We shouldn't be lazy. We should work, and we should accumulate wealth so that we're able to be the church, we're able to give. But what we find is that materialism and accomplishment cannot satisfy. Ecclesiastes 2, verse 17 Solomon says, so I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is frustrating, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish. Yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I have poured my effort and my skill under the sun. This too is frustrating, right? And again, he's not saying that when you and I work, our work is meaningless, or when we accomplish, our accomplishments are meaningless. What he's saying is they cannot satisfy the soul. Because you can't tell like a heart surgeon, hey, bro, your work, Solomon said, it's meaningless. You guys going, what are you talking about? If I asked that person who got a new heart and whose life I saved, if, I, if my work had meaning, they'd be like, absolutely. But the heart surgeon would say, there's an element to which my work is frustrating because the person I saved is going to die someday. An architect is going to say, my work is good work, but nations rise and fall and buildings and other things don't last forever. And regardless, I got to leave it to the control of someone else who might redecorate. It's frustrating. Your work your wealth. God may ask you, how do you run away to your tent when it comes to work or wealth? Are you trying to satisfy God's needs by materialism? Always hoping that next purchase, that next thing will satisfy who you are. Are you trying to satisfy who you are with what you have? And those are two different things. God may say, are you a workaholic? Do you run after work and all you know is work and, and you don't experience rest in your life? You don't experience the recharging of your soul. You don't walk in life in a way that has balance and margin in your life. In fact, it, it, workaholism will violate the, the relationships that you seem to be working so hard for. And that can become an idol. God may also ask, are you lazy? You're not a workaholic, but you're having trouble working like doing anything, and you run away to your tent. Maybe it's pleasure, maybe it's wine, maybe it's other things. Are, are you applying the gifts that God has given you? Are you busyness dependent? See, some of you, even when you have free time, you load it up with things to accomplish. You load it up with things to do. And when we do that, sometimes it's because we are avoiding life's big questions. We're uncomfortable with what does it mean to get alone and actually slow down and read God's word? What does it mean to look eye to eye and engage the living God? What does it mean to let God satisfy my soul and give me rest so I don't wear out over my career so that when I hit retirement, I got nothing to give because I'm worn out over work that won't ultimately last? Would I wear myself out over work that doesn't engage relationship with God? Or could I say, God, make me the worker in my field, the discipline that you've called me to be? 
that could be life-giving. Is it an escape to your tent? Has it become an idol? And the last one, number five, that Solomon explored was women. And I don't just mean women. So I've helped you out here. It says, idolizing a person who cannot make you whole or holy. He's going to reference it in his pursuit of women. But he's going to reference that it didn't satisfy. And there are some of you in this room that, that you realize you, you reach to relationship all the time. You're always looking for that person to meet your shortcomings. You're always looking for that person to, to leverage the things that you see as weaknesses in yourself and to complete you and to make you whole. Solomon said it this way in Ecclesiastes 7, verse 26. I find more bitter than death. That's pretty strong language. I find more bitter than death the woman who is a snare, whose heart is a trap, and whose what? Hands, thank you, are chains. The man who pleases God will escape her, but the sinner she will ensnare. You say, Dave, make that common language for me. All right, for every she-devil, there's a he-dummy. Right? On the flip side, for every like manipulative guy, there's a gullible female, right? Our world is preaching and teaching that there is a soulmate for you that is flesh and blood like you are. And it has just set you and I up for disappointment. And what God is saying is, I'm your soulmate. I created your soul, so therefore I can satisfy your soul. Now, here's the beautiful thing. If God allows, he will give you a helpmate. He will give you a helpmate. But when you look to a helpmate to be your soulmate, can you imagine the pressure put on a person designed to be a helpmate, but you're asking them to be your soulmate? No person can stand up to that pressure. No person can deliver. And God says, that's why I'm your soulmate. And in my goodness, I may give you a helpmate. And if not, I'm sufficient in your singleness. Because I'm your soulmate. The single is not without a soulmate. In fact, the single has fewer distractions and shiny objects in pursuing their soulmate. Are you human relationship dependent? Some of you have elevated your spouse to be a god or your boyfriend or your girlfriend. Others of you have elevated your children. You are so child-focused, so child-centered in your routine, in your schedule, and your life that you may not be leaving your child to their soulmate. And you may not be caring for your soul because you're pouring it all out in an area where you might be distracted. Our relationships in escape to your tent. What circumstances or setbacks typically make you want to flee to your tent? See, the Israelites assumed that they could manipulate the power of God. And when you and I, when we run away, what happens is this. We run away to something. We run away to any of the things we've elevated to be idols, and we run away to them. But it's there that God would allow you and I to come to our senses it's there that you and I start to think, what do I want God in my life for? What could God be to me that these things cannot be? 
And God in his grace draws you and I out from there. He draws us back into relationship with him that in our midst of our frustration in life, we would turn and love him and seek him and be satisfied by him. Some of you, you think God's hand is against you. You're looking at your life circumstances. You're looking at the idols that you've run after and none of them is satisfied. And you say, I must just be had the hand of God against me. But I want to tell you that nothing could be further from the truth. Isaiah tells us that Jesus hung on a cross and he stretched out his hands. He had his hands pierced. He had his feet pierced. And our sin was laid on him. The wrath of God, the hand of God against us and our sin, which we deserved. God said, I love you so much, I will become flesh in Jesus and I will take my righteous wrath against sin upon myself. Isaiah said it this way in Isaiah 53, verse 5, speaking of Jesus, it said, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace, peace is a great thing, but it was on him and by his wounds we are healed. We, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. He stretched out his hands on the cross. God's hand is not against you. His hands are for you. And sometimes when you come to the end of your idols, you begin to see the pierced hands of Jesus and you say, well, you would do that for me, that I could have new life and forgiveness of my sin, that you would do that for me. God's love in his hand is for you. Will you close your eyes, just bow your heads just a minute, focusing on your own life. Right now, God is just saying to you, listen, stop just seeking my hand. Stop seeking what I can do for you, but seek my face. Seek my head. Seek who I am and find that I satisfy in the frustrations of life. And stop running to idols to try to satisfy your deepest needs. For some of you in this room, you're realizing right now what Jesus did for the first time in your life. You're realizing he did that for me and I need to receive his forgiveness in my life. I need to ask him to forgive me of my sin and to make me a new creation. To, you want to enter relationship with God for the very first time. The way that you do that is you cry out to God. You pray to him. He hears you right where you're seated today. And if today you'd like to receive Jesus and his forgiveness, then you pray something just silently right where you're seated after me. God hears you. You just pray this. Jesus, today I give you me. I ask you to come into my life and forgive me of my sin. I believe that you died on the cross for my sin, that you took God's righteous wrath against me on yourself, that you rose to new life, that you are God. I ask you to come into my life and make me a new creation on the inside because today I give you me. Thank you for listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For information on Sun Grove Church, visit our website at sungrove.org.